Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Thank you, Ryan. Um, as we get back into Genesis, uh, we're going to we'll do some recap and we'll go through this, this uh, section of verses. But I want to say a couple things first. Um, I, I really appreciate everybody's prayers over the past week or two with my family as I kind of went through COVID and didn't really have many symptoms and, and stuff like that. Um, lost taste and smell. Still can't taste or smell anything. I promise I showered today. Um, but... Uh, I just, I just appreciate a number of people would stop by and drop little gifts off for the family and stuff like that or, or send us kind notes during quarantine. I know uh, quarantine's kind of rough on, on my family. We've gone through it several times. This is the first time any of us actually got COVID. So uh, those little prayers, those blessings and stuff really mean a lot to us. So I wanted to say thank you to everyone for that. Um, and then uh, as we get into this, uh, I, Luke and I didn't coordinate this, but what a wonderful set of verses that we went through in liturgy to lead us into this passage today, just watching people who put their faith in something other than God, who are trying to build a house on something other than God, who are placing value in their own value and stuff on something other than what God has given us to place value in, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. We see people who are uh, in this passage going through all kinds of things out of their envy and their strife, and uh, we need to make sure that we are building our house upon God, upon what the Lord has given us and the blessings he has promised us, and not on what we value or culturally think is right or wrong. And so as we get into this passage, I think we'll uh, find that that liturgy was um, just a perfect lead-in to it. So I appreciate that, Luke, and uh, we didn't coordinate that, but we know the Lord did. So I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then we'll begin in our passage. Lord, we thank you, God, for your many blessings, and God, that you are a rock we can build, uh, build upon, and God, that you are our fortress, and you are our place to run in times of trouble. And Lord, that when we're sick, when we're suffering, when we're facing uncertainty, when we're facing disappointment, when we're not getting the love and care we feel we need or we're, we're distressed, God, you are a place of refuge. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray we can go through this passage with eyes and ears open to understand and to listen and to hear what you are saying to us today. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back here in Genesis, and I wanted to kind of recap a little bit about where we've been. So um, Jacob uh, deceived Esau for his father's birthright. We remember he dressed up in the, in the, the skins, and he went in, and, and his father uh, ate of the stew he had made and gave him the blessing, and he took that from Esau. And we understand that it had been promised that he would get it, and so... Uh, he did, but through deception, and, and his mother, Rebecca, was very scared for him, that Esau was on the war path, so he sent him, his mother sent him away to Laban, to her people, to go and find a wife. So um, he has taken off, he has gone back to Laban, so he would have been going kind of into like modern-day Iraq and Turkey, or um, Iraq and Kuwait area, back to uh, his mother's people to find a wife. And he arrived there, and he saw uh, Rachel, and he loved her, and he was very uh, desirous of her. He made a deal with Laban to work for seven years for her. And at the end of seven years, they hold this big wedding feast and everything, and he consummates the marriage, and, and the next morning realizes it's Leah, that he's been tricked. So the deceiver was deceived. 
And we see that uh, he agreed to work again another seven years so that he could get Rachel, his beloved, the one he wanted to marry. And so when we go back into chapter 29 a little bit, at verse 30 it says, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. So he loved Rachel more than Leah. And then in in, uh, verse 31 it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So we see that the wife that was unloved, the wife that was considered uh, second string, the one that was not really wanted, ends up being the one to have the first four sons, right? She is now hoping for this favor from her husband. She's been uh, worried about his affection and care and desirous of him to love her. And now she thinks he finally will. I've got these four sons for him. And if you look at their names, Reuben, uh, he's the firstborn son. That's prestigious. And, and his name means see a son, right? So see, hey, I'm, uh, we've born this son. You know, I'm, I'm in first place now, right? See. And now my husband will love me. And then she ends up having Simeon. And Simeon in the original language is similar to the, the, the word heard. And she says, you know, God has heard me. So Simeon is named after that. Then she has Levi, which uh, in the original language sounds like attached. You know, she says, my husband will be attached to me. So she's named Levi as attached. And then has Judah, which sounds like praise, because she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And so his name sounds like praise in the original language. Then she ceased bearing. So if my kids were named after how I felt when they were born, right, it'd be tired and overwhelmed and stressed, (laughs) right? So... It's, it's funny just because as we go through and read these names, they're all named after sort of what's going on at the point when they're born. Um, but she ceased bearing. So a couple of things here. We're going to see that uh, barrenness is a bit of a theme in the Bible. So as we get into this, um, we know that Sarai was barren. And when we were back in Genesis 16 through 18, she was barren, yet uh, Abraham and Sarai were, were promised a son. But there were many years between the time the promise happened to the time that their son was conceived. And in the meantime, she had given Hagar over to Abraham to have a son. And she did, and there was just all kinds of family struggles and drama there, right? Rebecca, the mother of Jacob, she was barren back in Genesis 25. And Isaac prayed for her, right? He went to the Lord in prayer for her, and she conceived Jacob and Esau. And we see here there's points in this passage where we're going to see Rachel and Leah go through times when they are barren and unable to have children. And then Hannah, we know in 1 Samuel, right, she prayed for a son and prayed for a son and had a son. And what did she do? She turned around and gave him to the Lord. And we see in Elizabeth in Luke 1 when uh, she is able in her old age, she conceives a son, John the Baptist. So there's this idea of barrenness and there's this idea of God opening a womb. 
And so I wanted to kind of just be really clear about it. You know, I understand, um, you know, a lot of people go through times when they're not able to conceive children. And, and we know nowadays, more so than they did then, that, that this could be a, a father issue or a mother issue um, physically, right? Medical science has given us a lot more knowledge about it. Back then, it was always this reproach, like, like it was God's judgment on you, and society would judge you if you were unable to have kids. And I think that, you know, culturally, we've moved away from that a lot, especially the more that medical technology has taught us. But um, just from a clarity perspective, we know that God is sovereign over everything. And we, we're going to see as a theme today and a theme through all of the Bible that God will open and close wombs. And we don't always understand why. And we don't always understand how, but he does what he does, and he's sovereign over that. And that's all, that, that can be very hard to accept. But the truth is that God is sovereign over it, and that conception is of the Lord. And it's one of the reasons that we are pro-life, that we celebrate the conception of a child. In this church and, and many Bible-believing churches, we are, we are celebrating life because we don't believe that any lives are an accident. We may not plan it, we may not expect it, but they are never an accident. God is sovereign over that, and if a child is conceived, that child is, is to be nurtured and cared for as an image bearer of God. And that's why we believe God is sovereign over birth and death, and that we should always err on the side of life. So that being said, um, we're going to go ahead and get into our chapter today. So verses 1 through 8, we're going to see that Rachel serves her envy, right? She's feeling very envious, and she serves her envy. And then we're going to see in 9 through 21 how Leah serves her insecurity, right? That is the God that she has, her insecurity. Yet we're going to see that in the end, all that happened, God is sovereign over all of it. And what happens is, you know, they they serve themselves, yet God is in control. And we're going to see how God has a plan for this. Even though this craziness is going on in this family, God has a specific purpose. So we're going to start here in verses 1 through 8. It says this, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, And has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I've wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So we see here how Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. She envied her sister. We think of the word envy, and what does envy mean, right? There's this great longing for something that belongs to someone else. She's longing after what her sister has and not what God has given her, right? There's this comparison to her sister. She's measuring herself against her sister, not against the Lord, but against her sister. And she said to Jacob, "'Give me children or I shall die.'" Now, sometimes I think you have a kid sitting at a dining room table and they say, if you make me eat broccoli, I'm going to die, right? It's, it's, 
overdramatic, and she's, just, she's got this overdrama going on that I shall die. It is consuming her so much that she has not born children. And she's seeing her sister, Leah, the unloved, the unloved wife is bearing children. The unloved wife is going to get favor. The unloved wife is having sons. She's the one who's being seen by society and culture around her as the favored one. And it's eating her up because she was supposed to be the desired one. She's supposed to be the one who's in first place. And she's being overtaken and overshadowed by this sister. Has she gone to the Lord in prayer? Not that we have record of. We look in verse 2. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. So she's envious and he's angry, right? And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Right, this annoyance and this hostility, I'm sure this was not the only conversation to happen about this topic, right? We're all married here, we get it. <laughs> Most of us are married and we understand these, these conversations don't happen once. This is over time. And this keeps coming up and he's, he's just frustrated and he's hostile. And again, he's recognizing God controls conception. But again, we don't see him do what Isaac did. We don't see him going in prayer for his wife. We don't see her going in prayer to the Lord for her barrenness. Instead, they're fighting each other. They're arguing against each other. They're blaming each other. So she says, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Now, how much, could, how much is this consuming her? I mean, for a wife to send her husband into the arms of another woman... How much is this consuming her? Having children and bearing sons is, is such an idol to her that she would drive her husband into the arms of another woman. I mean, that is, that is just an all-consuming envy that is going on here. And it's interesting also in verse 3, it says, Give birth on my behalf. So culturally, she could claim a servant's child. And this was something that throughout history I've read about in other cultures, other time periods, that, you know, uh, servant children could be considered part of the family if they so adopted them in. There's something interesting, though. Depending on the translation you have, there are some translations that say that I may have, that she may give birth on my knees. And so when you stop and think, on my knees, what does that mean? And there's two interpretations I found. One I found all over the place in commentaries. And that was that essentially when this this servant child would be born, it would be handed over to uh, Rachel, and Rachel would have that child on her knees and would name it and nurture it and care for it. And it's almost like a claim of adoption. This is now my child. I named it. John MacArthur was the other one I found. And I know a lot of people have MacArthur Bibles. That's kind of why I'm addressing it. Um... I don't know if he's right or wrong, but he makes the statement that giving birth on my knees meant the servant would actually sit on her knees as she gave birth, and that that would signify she's having birth on behalf of the other. I don't understand physically how that works. I've seen childbirth. I've seen C-sections, let's be honest. Um, but, uh, but the thing is, is it, it's... I found that in MacArthur. I didn't find it anywhere else, but it's an interesting note, and I, I just know so many people have a MacArthur Bible, I wanted to address that. I'm going to kind of lean toward it's an adoption, 
that that child would be born and taken from the mother and given to Rachel, that Rachel would have that child on their knees and adopt it in this kind of ritualistic ceremony of naming the child. That's, that's the most common interpretation I found. So here she gets to, to name this child and claim this child as hers. And so she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Let's just dwell on this for a moment. So just like Sarai gave Hagar to Abraham, here she gives her servant over. Here, have, have children with her and I'll claim them. And we see these mistakes repeating themselves, right? It didn't work out well with Hagar, right? It doesn't work out that she's taking God's job into her hands, right? God opened and closes wombs and she's saying, you know what, if he's not going to open this one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this other womb. I'm going to take his job into my hands and figure something out. I'm going to create this plan and make it happen. Now, here's the thing. This is kind of a bad idea, and Jacob goes right along with it. And I I just want to say, you know, we're, you know, a lot of married couples here, we defer to each other on many things, right? There are things that we guys just know, leave that to our wife, she's much better at it. And there's things that wives know, my husband's gifted in that area, just let him do it, right? And we defer to each other, and that's a good thing, right? We have different gifts, we have different talents, we have different interests, and it's good that we give and take. But when it comes to morality, and when it comes to God's will, there is no deferring to a spouse that's going to be correct. Instead, we should be leading our spouse back into the Bible and understanding what God calls us for. Back in Genesis 16.2, Abram did the same thing. It said, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He didn't listen to that promise God gave him. He listened to his wife, and he gave in. And he let it go. He deferred. He abdicated his leadership. Rather than saying, no, we have a promise to stand on. He said, okay. And he went through with it. So when God's word is at stake, we as married couples should not be deferring to one another. We should put God's word above all and stand on it, even to our spouse. So there are places in the Bible, wives are called to submit to their husbands. But if your husband's calling you to something immoral, and I'm not just talking sexual, but immoral in other ways, deception or, or uh, pride or, or envy or things like that, we should be resisting that and leading back into the Bible. Men, as husbands, we shouldn't just appease our wives if they're asking for something that's not correct or if they're asking for something that goes against the Bible. Right? We can't defer to each other on those things. We need to check each other on those things, and we need to be a conscience to each other on those things and lead back into the Word of God. Us as husbands lead our family back into the Word of God rather than giving in or appeasing or being passive in the face of sin. So that being said, we watch as Jacob does the opposite. And Jacob went into her, and Billah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. And so when she says, God has judged me, she's saying, God has favorably judged me. God's happy with what I did. He's blessed me with this, right? She's looking at the the results and saying, hey, this this was the right thing to do. See, God blessed it. She's putting words in the mouth of the Lord here. 
He has heard my voice and given me a son, therefore I'll call his name Dan. The word Dan sounds like judged in the original language. We see in 7, Rachel's servant Billah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Naphtali sounds like wrestling in the original verses. So here's Rachel speaking of this like a competition. Right? She's saying, I prevailed. I beat my sister. Right? Everything is in comparison to her sister. It's not in comparison to what the Lord has done. It's not in comparison to, uh, you know, her love for her husband. It's not in comparison to anything holy. Instead, it's this competitiveness. I'm going to beat her. I'm going to win. I'm going to be number one. And she's got a husband passively sitting back and watching this happen and taking part in these bad ideas and taking part in all this. And have you ever listened to someone who's trying to convince themselves of something that's not true? Like when someone's trying to convince you they're happy when they're not? When someone's trying to say that they're enjoying something when they're clearly not? And they're trying to convince themselves it's sad and it's frustrating. And that's what we're listening to here with Rachel. I wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Let me face it, she told her husband to cheat. (laughs) To cheat on her and take another wife. And, and it, you know, all of history for thousands of years has the recording of the fact that this is not true. This is not her kids. These are her servants' kids. Right? The truth is going to find us out. But she's trying to satisfy her envy, and then she's trying to convince herself that this is a good thing, that God has blessed this, and God has not blessed this. God has allowed it. And we see her sister turn and do the exact same thing. When we look at verses 9 through 21, Leah serving her insecurity. It reads this, When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Let's pause for a moment here. So Leah is seeing that she has not borne children. She's borne four sons so far, but that she stopped bearing children. And now her sister's servant is bearing children in the name of Rachel. Right? And she's worried. Here she thought she was getting some advantage. She thought she was uh, somehow going to get her husband's affection. And now she sees the the most loved wife is going to get his affection. So she does the exact same thing and gives her servant Zilpah over to Jacob. Right? She's got four sons already, but she's saying, you know what? I can win now. Right? I'm going to wrestle with my sister and prevail. That exact same attitude going the other way. And how sad is this? Stop and remember back in chapter 29, verse 30, it said, in 29, 29, it had said, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And then in the next verse, it says, Leah was hated. So who hated her? It wasn't Jacob. It was probably Rachel, right? Because Jacob loved her less. It doesn't say Jacob hated her. It says she was hated. 
So this is a rivalry going back to the beginning between these two. If this chapter isn't a case against polygamy, I don't know what is. But as Leah said, good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Gad in the original language sounding like good fortune. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. Do you remember that verse where women called her happy? Anywhere? We have no record of that. In fact, she's hated. She's miserable. She's seeking after a husband, right? You know, now my husband will love me. Now the Lord has judged me. Now, you know, she's, she's miserable. But here she's trying to do the same thing and convince herself, I'm happy, right? This whole passage, she's hated, but now she's trying to convince herself she's happy. How sad is this? How sad is it to just watch as these two miserable women competing for their husband's affection and competing for being in first place. And they're living lies. My servant had a baby, but it's my baby, right? That's a lie, and we have it right here. We know that's not true. They may have been able to claim them in their culture, but they're not their children, So she called his name Asher, which in the original language sounds like happy. This next section reads like this, starting in 14, it says, In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But he said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then may he lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So what's a mandrake? I don't know if many people hear of a mandrake outside of the Bible. Um, I, I I first came across the word years ago, um, Niccolo Machiavelli had written a play called The Mandrake Root, and in the play, it was uh, somebody was trying to use mandrakes to conceive a child, and that's essentially what it is, right? Mandrakes are a folk medicine that was used as a conceptual aid. People thought it would help them to conceive children. So here Reuben's bringing in mandrakes, and it doesn't really say why he's bringing them in. I don't know if he's bringing them to Leah to say, hey, these will help. Here you go. Try these or if they're valuable financially, so he's bringing them in to say, hey, we can sell these, we can make a medicine and sell them. But for whatever reason, he's bringing them in, and Rachel says, oh, I gotta have it, I gotta have it. Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she, meaning Leah, said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Let's stop and go back a little bit at who took whose husband. Right, back with this wedding party, Jacob was going to marry Rachel, and was deceived into marrying Leah. But then Leah's turning around and calling Rachel the usurper, right? So even just this twist of history to try to restate history, 
to fit her agenda, right? The bitterness is deep, very deep within these ladies. It said, would you take my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then may, he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Let's let that sink in a little bit. She wants to have children, but rather than being with her husband, she's going to turn to a folk medicine. Does this make any sense? Obviously, she's been with her husband a lot, hasn't had kids on her own, so she's thinking this conceptual aid's going to help. But how does this work out? Jacob came from the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes, right? This is just manipulation, right? Rachel's trying to manipulate Leah into getting this conceptual aid. Leah is manipulating Rachel to get another night with her husband. And just all this bitterness and manipulation. And Jacob, where is Jacob in all this? He's just going along with it. He's not turning around and taking his wives and helping them both feel valued. He's not building them up. He's not leading them in prayer. He's not taking them to the Lord. Instead, he's just like, Okay, and he's just going along with it. I hired you. Okay, it's just passive, just passively going along with it, not being a leader, totally abdicating his role here. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. In the original language, that sounds like wages. So again, this assumption that God's giving approval. Yes, he opened the womb, but saying God is approving of the fact that I gave my my slave girl to my husband. But we know that when we get what we want, that's not always a blessing from God, right? Have you ever gotten something you asked for and then kept wondering, why did I ask for this? Maybe you get a job that you thought you really wanted and you get there and it's crazy and it's miserable. You know, we think back through like the the history of Israel where it's like they asked God for different things and finally he turned them over to their desires. And it wasn't wasn't because he was happy with them. It was because he was frustrated and thought, fine, go deal with all that sin and take the judgment that comes with it. Just because we get what we want doesn't mean God is blessing us because of what we asked for or he's rewarding us because of what we wanted. Most of the time, our desires are not his desires. Our desires are selfish desires. Just like we see these two ladies who just want to be the number one wife. Their desire is to have their husband's affection and to one-up their sister. She conceived again and bore a sixth son, And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me. Right? She's still driven by this desire for her husband's approval and affection. And the name Zebulun, she has Zebulun. And in the original language, that sounds like honor. And then verse 21 is kind of like a footnote here, right? Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now, it's likely that Dinah was not the only daughter to be conceived all through this. But we are going to see Dinah come up again here later in Genesis. And she's probably mentioned because of that. Because later, um, she comes up and, and is uh, defiled and her brothers uh, go and try to avenge her name. And so she's probably mentioned here specifically because of uh, the story that we'll be seeing later on. 
So we see this desire consuming these two people. They're placing the value that they have up against what everybody else looks like, what everybody else has. And it's breaking their hearts, and it's eating them up with bitterness, and it's eating them up with envy, and it's breaking this family apart, and it's causing division and strife. And through it, Jacob's passive. We're going to see here, verses 22 to 24, God's in control of all of this. He's seeing it happen. He knows what's happening. And yes, he might be opening and closing wombs as he sees fit. And these children might be born even through these these ridiculous ways of of trying to have kids and, and these relationships. God's sovereign over that. He allowed these children to be conceived and born for a reason. Because God is sovereign and he knows us better than we know ourselves. Verses 22 to 24 say this, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So Joseph means, may he add. And it sounds like taken away. which kind of foreshadows what happens with Joseph later, right? Who will be taken away. And she does have another son, Benjamin, who's, who comes up later in, in Genesis. When we go back to verse 22, though, and we, we, we understand that God is sovereign. We, as we said at the beginning, God is sovereign over conception. As difficult as that might be for us to understand, it says here he opened her womb, right? It's not mandrakes. It's not giving away her servant girl. God's specific action showed this, right? This child has intention, God intentionally opened her womb. It wasn't like an accident. She conceived and bore a son, and it was Joseph. So here we've got, when you include Benjamin, who's not born yet in this chapter, but when you include him, here's the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's where they came from. Okay, so Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And we know this family dysfunction doesn't end here. But that God has a purpose for this. So Judah, right, fourth son, son of Leah and Jacob, Judah's line is the line that Christ is born into. And we see here from Rachel, Joseph, the 11th son, Joseph's eventually going to be sold into slavery, go into Egypt, but God used that for his own purpose and power that the family would be saved from famine by him later. Right? These, these people have purpose. They have value. Each one of them, God has made in his image, even through sinful relationships. And God has a purpose for these 12, these 12 men, that these babies would be born and raised and be the 12 tribes of Israel that reminds us, Jacob's other name, Israel, right? When we think Israel, when someone says Israel, right? It means these children of Jacob, the sons of Jacob. How do we take a chapter like this with misery and fighting and bad relationships and envy and anger and competition 
and understand it in our own time. I think for each of us, there are times when we struggle with envy or we struggle with anger. We struggle with comparing ourselves to our neighbor, comparing ourselves to maybe somebody else sitting in the pew here, comparing our job or our income or our cars or our house, or even just how others look or how others uh, perceive themselves. Or, you know, we might envy people's confidence. We might envy people's, uh, their, their charisma. And how does that change our behavior Are we changing our behavior to try to match that? Are we changing our behavior to try to capture some of that magic for ourselves? I I, I think like, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, business podcasts and things like that, and there's all these podcasts, you know, reinventing you or, um, you know, how do you give yourself a makeover? There's all these things, right? And even in uh, the business world right now, stoicism is this big deal where everybody's trying to take these stoic things, these stoic philosophies, and how do I fix myself? A lot of times we're being driven to comparison, and it affects our behavior, right? We try to put on almost like an avatar. We try to put on a different personality. We try to put on a, a different way of thinking or a different way that we look, right? We, uh, you know, we put up a Pinterest wall, and people go along, and, and they compare what we have, right? There's the vanity postings on Facebook that we compare ourselves to. And as we've said many times before, it's like you, you, you see somebody's best day and you compare it to your worst day, right? And you feel worse about yourself. Or you want to fix it, or you want to maybe one-up it just a little bit, right? We, we're driven by this, visual, envy. We're driven by this. Our sinful nature feeds on this. And all these things become idols that we put above our Lord Jesus Christ, right? It kills our contentment. It kills our joy. Rather, we should be turning to the Lord and finding our joy and contentment in Him. That we may have a smaller house than our friends. We may have an older car than our friends. We may have a smaller bank account than our friends. We may have uh, children who have special needs that slow our lives down. We may have different burdens that we carry in our household. And we know that all those things, just as we said God is sovereign for opening and closing wombs, God is sovereign for what we have and what we don't have. And oftentimes there's many times we don't have the things we want. God wants us to turn to Him. So I say there's another application here. As husbands and wives, are we finding value in our spouse Are we trying to find them to complete us? Are we looking for them to fill a hole in our lives? Oftentimes we do that, right? And oftentimes we want them to fix what's wrong with me. God doesn't call us to go and search for them to fix us, even as our spouse. Yes, they might complete us in many ways, Right? They're our companion, our better half, our second half, our, 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 you know, our lover, our friend. They're, they are so much to us, and they are a blessing from God. But if, if we expect to get married and be fixed, if we expect our spouse to go and complete us, we're going to be disappointed because our spouse is a sinner just like we are, with envy and anger and comparison problems. Right? They have their own Pinterest wall of things they like and want to idolize. They have their own Facebook postings of what they're interested in. And they may be looking for us to complete them. 
and we're trying to find value in something other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And also, you know, men, are we actively building up our wives and children to honor the Lord over and above all other things? All through this passage, we watch Jacob take a back seat, and he did what his wives told him to do. And we don't hear him praying for them. We don't hear him saying, hey, the Lord has promised, or the Lord gives us, or the Lord will provide. Instead, it's anger and bitterness over having the same conversation over and over again, over uh, not, not being able to provide his wife with a son. He's just passively sitting back and allowing himself to be hired by his wife. I mean, even just the, the verbiage that's used here just shows his level of passivity. And we're not called to be passive. We're called to stand up and lead, and we're called to take our children and our wives into the Word of God and help them find value in being found and washed in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't just sit back and watch as our children run amok and all our children run amok because we can't control them. But we should be guiding and shepherding and leading and correcting and take an active part in building them up. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we are all prone to searching for fulfillment outside of a biblical lens. But we're forgiven for it. Christ took all that sin and put it on the cross with him. He bore it on his shoulders and took his righteousness and gave it to us. I think, uh, you know, growing up in America, it's hard for us to separate sort of our American lens from our biblical lens and to be able to look at things biblically. A lot of times we look at it from an American point of view, and the American point of view is often one that is very materialistic, and it's one that wants to compare we're built this way, we're wired this way in our hearts, no matter where we grow up in the world. But we live in a society that is so blessed financially and so blessed with prosperity that oftentimes we, we mistake that. We mistake that for a blessing from the Lord. We mistake that as the way God will give us honor or glory or, or something in some way to fulfill us. And we're not going to find fulfillment in our stuff or in having children we're going to find it in trusting in Him. And when we approach our marriage and our parenting, we need to approach it from the point of view of that servant leadership that God provided through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would, that we would lay our lives down for our family. I'm going to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You, Lord, that You lead us back to the cross, God. Lead us to trust in You. Lead us to... Uh, put our faith in you and not the idols of our life, not the comparisons or not the fulfillment through a spouse or through our job or through finances. But instead, Lord, lead us into your promises that we can look upon the uh, birth and the life, the perfect life and the sinless death that Jesus bore, that he was sinless yet took our burdens upon him on the cross. And God defeated death when he rose again on the third day. And God, help us to find fulfillment in you, Lord, to be buried in your word. And God, to be wise with what you have taught us. Lord, that we can look at our spouse or our children. And we can look for ways to serve them. 
rather than be served by them. Lord, that we can take that Christ-like focus and be able to apply it in our lives, Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit, bring that upon us that we can be wise and joyful in our, in our, uh, our, our spouses. We can be wise and joyful in the work you've given us. God, that we can be built up and, Lord, be able to shine your light wherever we go. God, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.